Howdy, I'm Ben Crockett, uh, host of 451 Now, and it's, it's a great pleasure to be able to introduce Senator Phil Graham. You know, when introducing Phil Graham, the most difficult part is choosing which of his many careers to discuss. Senator Graham matriculated at the University of Georgia, earning his PhD in economics, later teaching at Texas A&M for over a decade. Entering politics, Senator Graham began as a congressman for Texas's 6th district, which was this district in those days. Following his time as a congressman, he served in the U.S. Senate representing the great state of Texas. After Congress, Senator Graham worked as vice chairman of investments at USBAG and is currently a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Senator Graham, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ben. And let me say thank you all for coming. I spent 12 happy years here at uh, Texas A&M, and I met my wife here, uh, the source of all good things in my life. My children were born here, uh, and this place is very, very close to my heart. Senator Graham, I just wanted to start off by asking very broadly if you could share with our audience here tonight some of the key takeaways of your findings in this book. Okay, well, the, the book is really an effort to take a close look at how we measure income and poverty and inequality. Uh, about 25 years ago, I started to be convinced that something was wrong with American statistical measures. Uh, and over the years, that conviction has grown. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. Um, from 1947, until 1967, when the war on poverty ramped up, the percentage of Americans living in poverty fell dramatically. And then we started the war on poverty, and the level of poverty as a percentage of the population has not really changed in 50 years. It's oscillated between 11% of the population and 14%. But yet, if you look at all transfer payments that the government at all levels, federal, state, and local, pay to the bottom 20% of income earners in America, the average family in the bottom 20% of income earners in 1967, got $9,300 of government transfer payment. By 2017, 50 years later, that number was $44,500. Now, you got to ask yourself, how is it possible that we are transferring $44,500 on average to every household, the bottom 20% of income earners 
and the had risen from 9,300, and the poverty rate has remained unchanged. Two years ago, something happened that convinced me that I needed to write this book, and that is the Bureau of Labor Statistics publishes every year what people consume, the amount of resources they consume, and they break it out by quintiles, that is, they break the population into 20%, one top 20, second 20, middle 20, uh, set the next to the bottom and the bottom. And the Census Bureau, at virtually the same time, puts out income, family income, the basic building block of all American statistics and all measures of well-being. So, Two years ago, the amount that the Bureau of Labor Statistics found that people in the bottom 20% of income earners spent or consumed was twice as much as the Census Bureau found that they had in the way of income. The second quintile consumed 11% more than the census said it had in terms of income. And the top quintile consumed only 50% of its income, even though there was no evidence whatsoever that the thrift rate among the top 20% of earners was 50%. So how did this happen? And this is what the book starts with. So let me try, Ben, to zip through it, okay? So what we found is we went back to 1947 and we decided to go behind these numbers. It's a terrible indictment of the economic profession that we have used these numbers all these years and very little effort has gone into trying to understand where did the numbers come from and what are their limitations? So anyway, in 1947, the census started calculating household income. And in 1947, their statistical ability was pretty limited and almost all income was paid in cash or cash equivalent. Uh, most businesses didn't pay fringe benefits. Uh, the government payments were in cash or cash equivalent, a check. And so in 1947, the census started out counting only cash payments as income. And it produced an estimate that was about 97% accurate. The problem is when the war on poverty came in 1965, Virtually every poverty program was paid in kind. Now, what do I mean paid in kind? The government gives you a debit card, and you can go to the grocery store and buy groceries, but the government doesn't give you cash or a check. The government pays for your health care in Medicaid, but it doesn't give you the money. The government pays your rent in rent subsidies, but it doesn't give you the money. 
There are over 100 federal programs where the government simply pays somebody's bill or provides a service. And so what happened over time, remarkably, as the census started to measure all these things, and all the statistics in this book are from the federal government. Over time, they measured food stamps, and every year they put out how much we spent on it. Every year they measure Medicaid. But what we find is that two-thirds of all transfer payments are not counted by the Census Bureau as income to people who receive the benefit. Uh, they don't count food stamps, they don't count rent subsidies, they don't count Medicaid, they don't count over 100 federal programs and almost none of the state and local programs. For poor people, the number is much greater than two-thirds. About 90% of the government benefits they receive are not counted by the census as income. Now, there's one other thing that's important to note. The census does not take into account taxes. So that if you go back and you take government statistics and you add in all the transfer payments and count them as income to people that got them, and if you take taxes as income lost to the people that paid the taxes, here is what you find. The poverty rate is not 12%, but between 2 and 3%. Um, the level of income inequality is not that the top 20% have 16.7 times the income of the bottom 20%. They have four times the income of the bottom 20%. Now look, you can say 4 to 1 is too much. It's a legitimate debate, but it is a very different debate than 16.7 to 1. And then the one that is the real blockbuster is you've all heard income inequality is the greatest problem in America, and it's growing. Bernie Sanders says it's obscene and unsustainable. The Economist magazine says it is an irrefutable fact, universally accepted, that income distribution is very unequal and it is growing more unequal. We show that if you count all transfer payments as income to people that receive it and all taxes as income lost to people who paid the taxes, that income inequality is actually lower today than it was in 1947. The census says income inequality has grown by over 22% since the Second World War. We show it's actually declined by 3%. We also find that the bottom 60% of earners in America now have virtually the same income. Even though 91% of the prime work age persons in the, top, in the middle quintile work, and only 36% in the bottom quintile of prime work age persons work, their income is virtually indistinguishable. And the reason is 
since 1967, the real value of transfer payments has grown far more rapidly than the after-tax income of American workers. Finally, Ben, to, to get to your question. So what the book does is we, we talk about why income inequality exists. We talk about um, the super rich. Do they pay their fair share of taxes? The answer is yes. Up to $78 million a year, the tax rate rises. And for about 400 people, 400 filers, this is all IRS data, by the way, for about 400 filers, since they earn almost all their income with capital gains, and since they give vast amounts of money away, the tax rate dips into the high 30s. Um, and then we look at mobility. Uh, do people rise in America? 93% of people who are born and grow up in the poorest families in America earn more money than their parents as adults. And many of them rise in a relative distribution of uh, income earners. So mobility is alive and well in America. Would you rather be born brilliant, beautiful, and rich? Yes. But being born poor and not so smart and ugly are not disqualifying factors in America. People that have those qualities succeed every day in America. And then we look at the last 50 years. What happened? Well, what happened is we had great progress. The difference between the races declined. The college attendance by race narrowed in differences. Um, so America works. That, that's the basic conclusion of the book. Okay, Ben. Thank you. Senator Graham, it seems like we're, we're stuck in a bit of a loop. The census reports high inequality. Politicians vote for uh, more payments based off of faulty statistics. Uh, I guess my question is, why haven't more people said the emperor is wearing no clothes? I mean, what can we do to encourage policy based off of the facts? Well, what I'm trying to do is to get, I wrote the book, uh, I would have never done it without the pandemic. I, I work, I have a young wife, she wants money, and I have to still work. I had to work, but I couldn't travel. And so I had two years. And so I decided to put all this together. I got a guy who was twice commissioner, assistant commissioner of the Bureau of Labor Statistics under two presidents and a very distinguished economist that I met here long ago. And we ferreted out all this stuff. And so our objective is to change policy, to force the census, to use all available data to get the facts straight. Now, we don't argue that welfare spending is too high. We just simply say, let's get the facts and then let's have a debate about it. Uh, my own opinion is that we could provide benefits a lot more efficiently than we're providing them. But what is happening is exactly what you said, Ben. We, we talk about the poverty rate being 12 or 14 percent. 
We provide all these new benefits, which don't count as income in the census measure. And so the poverty rate doesn't change. And then we have the same debate again. And we provide more and more money. But the truth is, the 2 or 3% of people who are really poor in America are people that can't take care of themselves, the people that they're supposed to take care of. Many of them have mental illness problems. Many of them have drug problems. And the way we're going about it is not helping those people. We're providing more and more benefits to people who haven't been poor in a long time. So I'm trying to change public policy. That's what the debate's about. Yes, sir. You know, one of the, the interesting things that I found about your book is the earned income inequality. At first, could you just state a little bit about what the state of earned income inequality is? And then the top 20% of, now we're talking about income you earn. You know, not what you get from the government, not what you pay to the government, but what you actually create. The top 20% of income earners earn 90 times the income earned by the bottom 20% of income earners. Now, after taxes and transfers, they only got four times as much, but the difference in earned income is huge. And we analyze why it exists. The largest determinant of income, earned income inequality in America is work. If you work, you're not going to be poor in America. Um, uh, the economy has doubled the average income in the last 50 years. But if you weren't working, you weren't on this escalator and you missed the ride. If you walked up faster, you beat the escalator. If you stumbled down, you didn't go up as fast. But if you didn't get on the escalator, and the terrible tragedy of our welfare programs is that when the war on poverty started, 68% of prime work age people in the bottom 20% of income owners worked. That's now 36%. So we've replaced want and need with idleness. And one of my frustrations in my 24 years in public life was how do you help people without destroying their incentive to help themselves? Um, there are people that need help. Uh, the problem is the way we do it, we tend to destroy their incentive to help themselves. And one of the points we make in the book is now after the pandemic, when the average bottom quintile family is getting $50,000 a year, if you don't have a mandatory work requirement, you can't blame people for not working because they're as well off not working as they would be working. With the bottom quintile, um, households earning about $4,900 um, a year, but after transfers, they have about the same level of income as the next quintile. Uh, what, what effect do you think that has on the motivation for them to work? Well, it's clear we show what 
what the average tax level for each quintile is. And as your income goes up, your transfer payments go down, your taxes go up. And so the incentive for people that don't have skills is clearly under the current system not to work. And the problem is if you don't work, you don't acquire skills. Most people learn to do what they do by doing it. And uh, you never get on the playing field. You never, you never discover the talents you have. By the way, the second largest factor in earned income inequality is quantity and quality of education. If you want to deal with income inequality, make public primary and secondary education better. I talk about discrimination in the inner city schools, people are discriminated against. They never, I, I, I represented when I was in Congress, in addition to College Station, I represented South Oak Cliff, which was for all practical purposes, totally black. And I always wondered how many people at South Oak Cliff High School have real ability that is never discovered. And my guess is quite a few. When it comes to some of those policy recommendations, I wonder what the political will is for them in, in both the Republican Party and the uh, Democratic Party. You know, William F. Buckley Jr. once said the role of a conservative is this. Well, I, look, one of the things. <laughs> no, no, please. Well, well my, my role here is to get the facts straight. And then I think we can have a debate about it. I mean, the plain truth is, it says when you get the facts straight, Bernie Sanders went to bed, went to sleep, had a dream that America was a welfare state, woke up and it came true. We transfer more income than any other country in the world except France. Poor people in America in terms of housing, and 42% of all people defined as poverty in America own their own home. Over 80% of those homes have central air conditioning. Uh, the average poor family in America lives as well as average income people do in France and Germany and England. So we need to be debating different things other than just giving people more money. We need to be debating how we're doing these transfers. Do we need this giant bureaucracy? Um, what could, how is, are these programs worth what they cost? I mean, those are, that's the real debate we should be having instead of more money. Um, that's at least my view of it. Yes, sir. Much of that additional income occurs via uh, transfer payments in forms of things like Medicaid, uh, food stamps, and I guess what I'm wondering is, are those in-kind transfers worth what we say they are? Say that one more time. Are those in, for example, Medicaid, uh, is it, worth, is what it, it worth what it costs? Well, it's an interesting question. And we raised the question in the book. As I say at the beginning in the preface, 
We want to start a debate. We're not trying to end the debate. Um, I don't know if Medicaid is worth what it costs. Uh, the government pays only about 70 cents on the dollar for the health care it buys because it, it's able to squeeze private providers of health insurance and make them subsidize Medicaid and Medicare to a lesser extent. So it's, we're paying only 70 cents on the dollar. Is it worth it? I don't know. But it's a legitimate question we ought to be talking about. Senator Graham, I know that there's many people in this audience that uh, are going to go out there and buy your book. Um, but I also wanted to ask, is there any other books on economics or inequality that you think that our, our listeners should go out and, and read? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, could give, I could give you a long reading list. <laughs> the, um, um, I think everybody ought to read Milton Friedman's Free to Choose. Um, I think everybody ought to read Hayek's Road to Serfdom. Uh, there are a lot of things out there. Um, everybody ought to try to read the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal. Um, you know, we, none of us do as much as we should do to keep ourselves informed. Um, one of the luxuries I afford myself uh, now that I'm older and more prosperous is I, I take time to read more. Senator Graham, I think a, a question that I would really like to know the answer to, and I think our audience would really like to know the answer to, is, is there a question about the myth of American inequality that you haven't been asked that you would really like to answer? <laughs> um, I, I don't think people truly appreciate how much opportunity there is in America. Uh, when we're talking about inequality in here, and we, we, there's a lot of stuff in here about it uh, which really shows how America works. Uh, we, we don't have the data that would allow us to look at more than one generation. And real mobility in America is not just do you do better than your parents, but do your children do better than you do? Uh, a perfect example is George Washington's grandmother came to America as an indentured worker and George Washington became one of the richest men in colonial America, and in the words of George III, the greatest man in the world. Okay, this is America. And um, if you really understand the statistics, this stuff that the system is fixed, that it's rigged, has no basis in fact. Neither of my parents graduated from high school. Uh, my brother was the first person in my extended family to ever graduate from high school. Uh, 
if somebody's come convince me that the system is rigged and you can't succeed in America, they're going to have to get up mighty damn early in the morning. <laughs> okay? I know the system works. And you look at the data in here on Asian. Okay? You look at what Asians have done in America. And they've done it with hard work and family values. Uh, and you just see it everywhere. So America works. You work, America works. Uh, and the, the evidence is overwhelming that that's true. And uh, I would have to say that it worries me that there are people that are being taught in schools every day that, oh, you don't have a chance because you're not privileged, because your daddy's not rich, because you're black, or because you're Hispanic, because you're whatever you are. That's all crap. Uh, it's all crap. Uh, you can be whoever you want to be, but you got to be willing to pay the price. My mother, my sainted mother, had this view that if you were willing to pay the price, you could win the 100 meter dash in the, in the Olympic Games. Now, we know that's not true, but it is close enough to reality that it's a good approximation. There's very little you can't do if you're willing to pay the price. Senator Graham, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to be interviewed. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Me too.